we have Professor Keith Jeffrey from the School of History and Anthropology at Queen's University Belfast, Dr. Kevin Lawler from the School of Social Sciences and Law in Dublin Institute of Technology, Professor Stefan Decker from the Digital Enterprise Research Institute, NUI Galway, and Professor Ronan McNulty from the School of Physics in UCD. So the panellists will each speak for about five minutes, and then once again we'll hand over to the floor for a brief discussion. Right, well, I, I'm very grateful to have been invited to speak here. I feel like kind of lone humanities rep in a room full of science people, or at least on the on the program. Um, uh, so it's important that we, I can just emphasize the point made by Luke Drury at the beginning, that we have to take the whole range of, of disciplines, um, and we have different concerns and some different interests to this. Um, firstly, on a sort of general uh, um, basis, um, it's already been, it's already clear that this is a European dimension to this, but it's not just a European dimension. I mean, there is the peculiarity in Ireland of two jurisdictions, and uh, at uh, Queen's University Belfast, we are beholden to the UK's um, uh, uh, policies, and very much on the open access issue, the United Kingdom is, is, is forcing this. Um, uh, quite substantially. Um, but also in the broader international context, I mean, there are possibilities. It has been suggested that for the next research assessment, whatever it's called, exercise, that only material that have been um, um, submitted to uh, in open access compliant conditions will be judgeable by this. Now, that means, um, um, you know, we'll, ha we'll have to jump to that hoop. Uh, but there are, for example, American journals, uh, certainly in the humanities, um, where there's no prospect of them meeting these open access uh, uh, conditions. Uh, so that the open access policy being driven um, in the UK and in Europe might actually close access. Uh, to um, uh, publishing uh, opportunities uh, across the world. And so we have to bear that in mind. There are particular discipline concerns for the humanities too. Much of the discussion is predicated on research findings being published in journal articles, periodical articles of one sort or another. Um, the majority of research outputs, certainly in history and I think in the humanities generally, um, um, is not in journal outputs. Um, on the last research assessment exercise, 36% uh, only of the uh, outputs um, submitted to that were in journals. So that means that about two-thirds of the materials are in monographs um, and in um, uh, volumes of collected essays of one sort or another. Now, there's been a little bit of talk about monographs, about publications, but it's the kind of elephant in the room uh, away for the, for the humanities. Um, uh, and no one has really seized uh, uh, this issue as well. So that's uh, one we have to think about. There's also the question, I mean, this one year, sort of six months, one year, releasing all the rest of it, uh, uh, speaks to the immediacy and the immediate importance and the immediate uh, application of research. Uh, we have a much longer shelf life, half life. Uh, when I was editor of his Irish Historical Studies, I would find myself uh, uh, criticizing authors and saying, who are making contemporary references, and saying, how is this going to look in 20 years' time? Um, and they would say, oh, I never realized it would last that. Uh, 20 years is not unusual for uh, a humanities article still to have uh, um, uh, you know, scholarly leverage, um, which is a completely different uh, uh, situation or a substantially different situation um, in, in, in the sciences. 
the third sort of area I want to talk about, though, is a, you know a special case study. Um, you know, actual journals, practical difficulties. We have to apply this if this juggernaut is coming, as it as it appears to be. Um, uh, and I mean, my view is that it's a good thing. Um, my view is that any uh, uh, research done at public expense, and I think there is no research in historical discipline in Ireland that is not done with some con contribution from public expense of some sort or another. Maybe an institution, it may be a library, it may be an archive. Um, uh, so the public deserves to see this material. Um, second view is that research, in fact, effectively does not exist unless it is published. Um, uh, it is not a private kind of solitary pleasure, frankly. Um, it, only, it, has a, it, it only has a public existence when it's published, uh, and the more widely it's published, the better. Okay. Right, but with my uh, journal hat on, I've, I've been uh, involved with Irish Historical Studies, which is the leading Irish history journal. It's an ESF, International Category 1 journal, um, uh, um, and I've been involved with this for 30 years or so. Now, about, about every two years, a commercial publisher comes to us and takes the management board to a high mountain somewhere and looks and says, if you jump into bed with us, we will supply you with all these wonderful things. We will make it much more efficient. We will do your processes for you. And we all nod and we think hard about this and we sent them away. We are self-published and we retain self-publication because of two real concerns about it, is that these people are never absolutely quite sure whether they will still have the core concern with the content of the journal, the scholarship. And that's what we do. All we do is publish this journal. We do nothing else. Um, the second thing is, is what will inevitably happen when you jump into bed with a commercial publisher. I'm not against commercial publishers uh, in principle, just in practice. Um, uh, what happens uh, when you do is the first thing that will happen is not that the journal will become more efficient or anything else, but the subscription will go up twofold or threefold or fourfold. Um, and we concern that our open access policy in Irish historical studies means we make our journal affordable. And I can, you can subscribe tomorrow if you like. The institutional subscription is about 70 euros. Okay, and it's, you know, we don't charge a lot. But with open access coming along, and certainly in the UK, there is a possibility or the sort of suspicion that if, uh, um, uh, if we are required immediately to give away the articles contributed by scholars working in UK institutions, and that's 60% of our articles in the, uh, over the last two or three years, uh, why should United Kingdom institutional libraries pay a subscription for this? They get it for free. Um, so there is a kind of existential problem about the journal, whether the model will work. Now, you may argue there is other values to the journals. We do other stuff. Um, all of this which we do for free, I mean, that's the other thing, is this, again, is this private benefit public good thing. You know, we, 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 for the good of the discipline, we do the peer reviewing, we review books, we, we assemble the journal, um, we do those things, um, and we charge as little as we can. But, um, in, in, as it were, applying the open access things might threaten the loss of subscription. It might do. Also, there are considerable costs, as we're hearing. I mean, there's this problem is that open access brings with it protocols. It brings with it standards of digital preservation. It brings with it forms to be filled in about rights, about, you know, intellectual property, the whole paraphernalia, which is an actual cost and an opportunity cost 
to people who are marginally, you know, uh, the marginal cost can be quite high to people involved in, as it were, um, 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 spare time occupations for this, because we don't always get a lot of uh, uh, credit from our, our institutions for, for this uh, sort of pro bono work we do. Um, but there is, I think, in terms of thinking in terms of non-profit exercises. I mean, much of the um, process uh, has been driven by the supposed economic benefits from, from um, um, to university research and scholarship for uh, um, uh, the work on open access. Now, it's less easy to calculate specific and explicit economic benefits, if any. Um, it might be worth doing it in its own sake, of course, but that's a kind of ancient old-fashioned sort of view, uh, from humanities scholarship. Um, um, but it may well be that we need to consider more not-for-profit solutions to the open access problem, that institutions like the academy, institutions like universities, and university presses used to exist precisely to publish material um, more readily than a commercial publisher would do. Uh, a few of them still keep to that sort of thing. Um, and it might also be in practical terms, um, opportunities, practical help that organizations like the academy can do. Now, this I'm very pleased to be at this meeting today. I've been to several meetings in London, um, which it didn't seem to me very helpful. They seem to combine a kind of hand-wringing uh, uh, presentations from journal editors with uh, uh, smoke and mirrors presentations by well-padded publishers of one sort or another uh, <laughs> saying that what they had to offer, you know, was a kind of uh, back to the high mountain uh, um, uh, 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 business. But what's Although one size doesn't fit all, one size can fit many in different disciplinary parallels. And it may well be, I mean, I have an editorial board meeting, uh, management meeting of Irish historical studies coming up, and we're going to sit down and think, how are we going to manage this? What do we need to do? Now, there are another half a dozen journals in Ireland in history, and multiply this for every other, who are going to have to make exactly the same decisions. What we want is a kind of simple model to say, this is what you need to do, just X, Y, and Z, um, um, uh, to meet the requirements. Uh, um, uh, and it seemed to me that we could devise a one-size-fits-many uh, model uh, to help some of us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ronan McNulty from UCD. Okay, so I was asked to say a few words about open access in the physical sciences. And in speaking with my colleagues, I quickly realized that it's not just different by discipline, but even by sub-discipline as to what is the norm. So, for example, a colleague in computer science who tells me that if he even puts his paper up on his own private website, then it's quite likely he won't be published because it's already out in the open domain. Um, colleagues in atomic physics who, in general, Yes, they can, they can get the articles if they're, if they're um, published, but if they can't get access through, through the publication, they have to privately address their, their colleague or go to their web page and hope that there's some trail there of what they actually want. Um, and then we come to the situation, as Luke alluded to earlier, of astrophysics and particle physics, where we have a de facto complete open access system in place already. And as I'm a particle physicist, that's what I'll try and give you some um, feeling for what our system involves, because it is really 100% open access at the moment. Um, we operate basically through what's called the archive, um, which is a repository which sits in Cornell University. And if, alluding back again to some of the earlier talks, we have 100% buy-in. So you don't have to convince anybody to put a paper up there. 
everybody by default wants to put their paper up there. So 100% of the theorists in my field, 100% of the experimentalists in the field, everybody puts their preprints up on that. And the only thing it's not is it's not uh, peer-reviewed at that point. But there is some quality control because it's really only people at um, academic institutes that can put their, their, their work up. Um, then after that, in the, when, when it's up on that preprint server, only after that does it go to the journal. So maybe a few days later does it go to the journal for peer review. And then if it's accepted by the journal, then there's a hyperlink placed on the archive to say, oh, and here is the paper linked on the journal site. Um, so that's the way it works. And what does it actually mean in effect for, for me as a researcher? It means that 100% of all the information I could want in my field is on the web, and it's all in one place, which, which is superb. I mean, that's, that's kind of the ideal which you want anyway. You want everything at one site. So it's very, very easy to do literature searches, very, very easy to find all the information you need. Not only is it accessible from one place, but the papers are all there in one place as well. And if I contrast that to what I'd have to do for journals, I probably would have to go around what, 10 different sites with, with, with all the things written down, finally navigate through the different web pages. I mean, each, looking up each paper probably takes about 20 minutes if you do it by hand. And usually when you get to the last step and go click, it says, that'll be $40, please, because your university doesn't have the right rights or your computer hasn't got the right a ticket on it, I don't know. Anyway, it's a, it's a pain. So basically all of our stuff works through, through the preprint server and uh, that, that is ideal. The other great thing is that um, you can sign up every morning for an email from the preprint server and it will tell you all the papers that have come in that morning. So it's also very trivial to keep abreast of the subject. You get a mail with the 20 or 30 latest papers and then you can read them or not as, as you wish. Um, now, why did this happen? I, in our discipline and not in other disciplines. Uh, I think it's because, uh, as, as was said earlier, um, it's, it's rather particular that, that particle physics and astrophysics already by their nature are highly collaborative subjects uh, and information exchange is absolutely vital. You can, for the same reason, for example, that the World Wide Web came out of CERN information exchange, this preprint server came out of the same thing, that, that we depend on being able to talk very rapidly to theorists and express our ideas and, and they see our results. So it's a, it's a, it's a way of communication. Um, it was also set up by the community, which is quite important, I think, to bear in mind, that it's the scientists who are pushing this um, and saying this is what we need to do our research. And therefore the influence in turn back on the journals is quite profound. Um, because they, have, they know straight up that all the information is out there and they're effectively only producing, they're, they're coordinating the, the review process. Um, one other thing that happened because of this about five years ago is that the physicists themselves set up a journal called JHEP um, which is effectively open access um, or if it does charge, you're talking about a cost of between zero to 200 euro per paper that goes up there. So it's, it's very nominal. But it's run by the community for the community. And that's kind of their byline on it. It's also got the highest impact factor because everybody publishes their papers there. Um, so it's community driven. Um, and I think that is, that is the way to go. I mean, if people in their discipline decide this is what they want to do and if they have a strong enough and broad enough community to decide to do it, it will happen. Nobody can tell you what to do if all the scientists in your field say, this is the way that we want to do it. And just to kind of tell a apocryphal story at the end of that, 
Um, earlier this year, I wanted to publish uh, a paper in a, um, a journal, I won't mention the journal, but uh, they were actually canvassing for papers from the LHC, and they hadn't had a paper yet, and they were canvassing, so I thought my latest paper was actually quite relevant for what their speciality was, so I, I put it in, um, and it was accepted. And then they sent me the copyright agreement, and after discussion with CERN, um, I said, I can't sign this, uh, and I'm not prepared to sign this. Um, so either you re relinquish and, and we go to a Creative Commons copyright or else we're sending the paper somewhere else. And they backed down. And so that was published in open access form. So I think if the community takes a strong enough stance on this and says this is the way that we want to have our data out there in open access and everybody buys into it, things can change. So we have Kevin Lawler now from DIT. Good afternoon, all. Um, I just want to give you two uh, perspectives. One is the editor of, uh, of Journal of Applied Social Studies, IJAS, which is uh, produced via our institute repository, Arrow, at DIT. And the second perspective I'd like to give uh, relevant to today's discussions is around, um, as managers within uh, an IHE, how do we implement IR mandates uh, amongst our, our colleagues? Um, the, on, on the issue of using um, a repository for publication of a, of a journal, um, the Irish Journal of Applied Social Studies in our case, which has been online in open access format since 2010, um, I'd just like to very quickly go through some of the pros and cons. There's three or four pros and there's only one con as far as I can see uh, so far. Um, the first is that the, uh, the visibility of the journal exploded once we went online in 2010. It went from um, small print runs of about 1,000 paper copies to, since 2010, February 2010, over 80,000 downloads. So straight away, the, the journal has just gone into a different stratosphere in terms of um, its readers. Um, a second major advantage for us has been, and it's been alluded to already this morning, is the access to non-academics. I imagine everyone here today has access to a university library, which we take for granted. Our readership is largely targeted at social workers and social care workers. And once they leave college, they are cut off from access to journals unless they pay their $30 or $40 or whatever it is which most social workers do not uh, have, do not have budgets for. So for us, it was a very important principle that outside of the academy that the, the readership could still be uh, reached. So that has been a, a, major, uh, a major principle for us that uh, there can be a readership outside of uh, academia. Uh, another major pro uh, for us as a, an editorial board is that it's free, uh, the infrastructure for managing submissions, managing the review process, etc., uh, is part of the uh, the license that the DIT pays to Berkeley Electronics to provide our IR anyway. So up until 2010, it was basically a, an un, underutilized uh, resource that was just sitting there uh, in front of us. Uh, another major advantage is that, uh, and again, it's been alluded alluded to this morning, is that. We retain the peer review process, the rigor of sending papers to peer review. That, has, that doesn't change at all. That's, that remains the exact same. And just at a practical level, there's no more emails to people. It's all automated and it's all, um, it's all uh, automatic. Um, so in terms of just managing 
the practical mechanics of getting papers in and out and reviews in and out and so on uh, is all done for you. Um, the, the, and I've, I have, uh, I, the, the, the con uh, I alluded to uh, earlier, and I don't know what the solution is uh, necessarily, is that and we've also been taken to the top of the, the high mountain um, and we have resisted the, the temptations uh, so far. Uh, but it means that we are outside of the uh, Thomson Reuters uh, citation measurement, impact factor measurement system. We're not in that system. Now, as social scientists, that's perhaps less uh, important than it is for, for hard scientists. Um, but nevertheless, it does mean that your attractiveness for certain authors for whom this is very, very important, uh, i.e. UK authors particularly, going through the various ref systems, this is a big deal and you, you may not publish uh, in journals that aren't in the Thomson Reuters stable. Uh, so I, I think a, a challenge for us going forward will be how do we, or well, one, do we want to get into that game? Uh, and two, if we do, how do we generate uh, comparable uh, metrics for uh, our authors. Um, so it's, it's been a three-year-long journey so far, and I, I have largely only good things to say about it. Um, uh, the open, going open access has brought our journal to a much, much wider readership, and indeed a much wider, uh, much greater number of papers being submitted um, by potential authors. Um, The, and, and then just on a, on a separate matter that I've been asked to say a word or two uh, about, um, DIT introduced a mandate um, for staff uh, in 2009, I believe it was. Our senior librarian is here amongst us, and she'll, am I right, 2009. Um, so as a, as a head of school, that then raises the issue of how do you, how do you implement this uh, it's important for us, uh, for our authors, for our staff, uh, to raise the profile of the Institute through Arrow and then in turn for it to be raised through, through Rian and, and the other super harvesters. But as we can see with the stats on Rian, this has been embraced with varying degrees of enthusiasm, shall we say, um, around the country. Um, so there's quite a, a, a divergence in the, the population of Rian by, by the various members. Um, our experience, uh, both at, at my school level and, and at my college level, um, the, well, for what it's worth, um, our experience was, number one, straight away people's backs are put up. Here's a mandate. You must do this. You must do that. And straight away, academics are automatically disinclined to, uh, to, to comply, which I think is understandable. Uh, people don't like being told, here's another form you must fill in. Here's another password you must have. Here's another training thing you must go to uh, to get your work online. Uh, kind of the initial knee-jerk reaction was, was sort off. I'm publishing it in, in my journal anyway. Uh, why do I need to go through this? Um, but as time goes by, the benefits to the individuals, so Google Citation, for example, or Google Scholar Citation, um, a number of staff you can see, as soon as they put their material up um, in an open access format, the, the graph, the nice little graph that Google Scholar Citation does for each individual, immediately uh, uh, peaks. So there's benefits to the individual, there's benefits to, uh, in terms of greater citation, and there's benefits to the institute in terms of, of profile. Uh, the experience we've had is to encourage that has been a very, very slow, gentle process. 
that you provide the training, not the mechanical thing of uploading it. If you can send an attachment on an email, you, you can upload something. But just in terms of the, the issues around IP, the issues around copyright, the issues around embargoes, etc., to offer that training endlessly. And what we have decided to do in our college is to very gently and very slowly link um, uploading your material to Arrow to your research-related expenses. Not other expenses like mileage or whatever it might be, but expenses related to going to a conference, for example. Why should you be able to claim that, but then just sit on the output and, and refuse, so to speak, to upload it? Um, so we, we are very slowly trying to change the culture, and we're, we're three years in now, to a position where, whereby staff are thinking, well, why wouldn't I put it up to the institute repository as opposed to why should I? Um, I'm not saying we're fully there yet, but uh, we have found that's the, the best way to go, gently and slowly. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. And our final speaker is Professor Stefan Decker from NUIG. Okay, thank you for having me. Actually, I'm glad to be here. The reason uh, I'm very glad to be here is, is also um, I want to share an anecdote uh, with you. Um, about a personal story that I had. And if I had ever need convincing about the value of open access, this would be it. So I had the pleasure to stay and uh, during the Easter break in, in the hospital in Galway. What I had was uh, I had a gallstone, which was stuck in somewhere. And um, uh, well, it was quite a painful experience. I went through the usual procedure. I got an MRI. The stone was stuck. Um, was treated with anti antibiotics. Since it was Easter, nothing else could be done. So I was stuck there, had a bit of time at my hand. Um, after a couple of days, did uh, some research, was reading up what was happening uh, with me. Uh, so I tried to become an expert in gastroenterology. And um, my symptoms cleared up. Um, and I was scheduled to still to have an endoscopy, a removal of, of my stone in, uh, after, after, after Easter. Since every symptom was, was gone, I, I found evidence that, uh, um, that maybe that there was no need for this procedure anymore. It was also a quite risky procedure with a 0.5% mortality rate and 15% um, morbidity rate. Um, so I was quite motivated to figure out what was going on in, in, in there. Um, much to the dismay of my consultant, actually. Um, so, uh, and against the resistance of my consultant also, so I found evidence that, that maybe the procedure wasn't necessary uh, anymore, and uh, maybe there was a reason to divert from the common path, which says you do an MRI and then you do, do the end, end, endoscopy. Um, I found evidence that it was necessary, and after much argument, discussion with my consultant, I indeed got a second MRI after a week, and um, the, the MRI confirmed that uh, the stone was gone, and um, a very disgruntled consultant then let me go out of the hospital, and I was free, free to go. Um, so the only reason that I was had access, that I could read, uh, that could inform myself about what was going on and, and gather arguments was because I had access to the medical literature via the university account that, 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 that I have as a member of NUI Galway. If I hadn't had it, I'm not sure I would have been here. 
so I would probably still be in, in hospital. Right? There's a good chance that I, that I would be in, 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 in hospital. Um, the other fact that I, that I found out uh, by searching, uh, and believe me, I was very motivated to find the literature, um, in there was it was incredibly difficult to find anything that was relevant. So there are even public repositories in medicine, PubMed, for example. But uh, finding anything that was relevant to my case, granted, I wasn't, uh, I'm obviously not, not a doctor. Uh, actually, I am, but not in medicine. Um, was surprisingly difficult. So, so it, it, while the abstracts were all available in there, finding anything was, was not really uh, that easy. And that, in fact, confirmed me that, that the research agenda that exists and the path that, that in ICT is, is happening is exactly the right one, and we're making this access this easier. So Professor Quintana this, this morning mentioned uh, data mining as an access mechanism, as, as creating value out of uh, publication. But that is ultimately only the first step. So what, what really uh, is necessary and would have helped me tremendously to, to find something that, something that was useful for my particular case would have been if those publications would have been interlinked. If the publication metaphor by, all by itself would slowly evolve to something different, to something more granular, something that helps us to easier understand what is available and how what is available is actually interlinked with each other. What we still have in one publication is a metaphor which is driven by the 16th century, by, by dead trees, ultimately. Uh, so paper, the journal format that existed in the 16th century is still the same that we're using today. Despite that our environment, the way how we can access its information, distribute this information, is still, is, is, totally, is totally changed. So, and then this change will have an impact, slowly have an impact, how we access and how publications itself are being generated. So it's, the notion of a publication will change and has to change. We see this already happening, not only in open access, but, but also in open data, for example. So we see data portals emerging across the European Union in, in Ireland, um, but also, in fact, worldwide. We see national libraries publishing open data. We, we see even commercial companies, nature.com, publishing open data, the New York Times publishing open data, all becoming part of a network uh, of information which is now slowly belonging together. Even the commercial publishers, and I'm on the scientific advisory board for Elsevier's um, Cybers platform, admittedly the opposite of open access, but they're realizing that they no longer can hide or pre behind the paywall of PDFs. There are conferences at this point of time. Uh, one is, is adequately being called beyond the PDF. PDF being ultimately a metaphor driven by the 16th century, which explores different way how publication could, could look like. So what we see is the emergence of a network of information on top of the current outdated publication metaphor, showing us how the inter information has been interlinked that gives us direct and transparent access to this. This can only be work if we don't have the information silos, if we don't have the boundaries, the paywalls of the, of the publication that, that, that we right now have, where we create this information network uh, anymore, where we can see how our own research work results link and relate to all the other different uh, already 
published information that, that, that is out there. That is a future that is emerging. It's almost inevitable. We see it. We have to take care. We have to, to, to change the way how we access this, this, this information. The only way how we can really deal with the torrent of, of new results, of new information that is coming, coming, coming towards. So there is a case for open access. And there's a case for much more putting on top of it, starting with data mining, but in, cre in creating this network of information that, that we're talking about, which will enable us to, to have much more and much finer grained access to this information. The move towards publishing of research data is again just a, another cornerstone in, in, that, in, gen in that general move movement. So that is the perspective now from computer science, or at least from the particular angle of computer science about what is so exciting about open access, that it gives us the ability to get rid of the metaphors of the 1600, bring them forward into the 20, 21st century on a much finer granular level, allowing us access to really information and knowledge that we need at, 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 at a particular time. And maybe I, next time I don't have to spend my complete Easter holiday in the hospital finding out information, how to convince my consultant not to cut, cut me open. Okay, thank you. Stefan.